How's everybody? Ooh, hello. How's everybody doing? Try it again. We're good. Okay. How's everybody doing? I'm a little scared to talk now because it's. Hey, there's some uh, faces in the crowd that we have not seen in a while. Brad, it is good to see you. Yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We've missed you. And uh, we have a music impresario and, and art collector in the audience as well. And Dana Rosa. So. Your dad and I were joking that you would be the person that would find that uh, $25 million Ming boss in, uh, yeah, in the junkyard. Exactly. Right? The one you can't afford to insure because it's worth too much. Um, <clears throat> okay. We're going to get started. Okay, um, so we're in the second week of a three-week series. We're talking about Second Peter. Um, just for those of you that were not here last week, we talked about chapter one. Uh, you can go back and get that on the website. So, hey, have you guys ever heard uh, of the term fifth column? Have you ever heard that term? Yeah, lots of people not shaking, shaking your head no. Uh, I'm not surprised. It's not a very common term. Um, I had to search a little bit for it. I had heard it, and I can't even remember the context. But um, it supposedly came out of the uh, Spanish Civil War when General Emilio Mola, which I'm sure is a household name for all you guys, um, he was besieging Madrid, and he was asked by a reporter, um, he said, how many columns of troops do you have? And he had four with him. And he said, I have five. I have four on the outside of the city, but there's a secret fifth column inside the city. And these were people who looked like loyal government citizens, but were in fact rebel sympathizers. So these were people in industry, in government. Some of them were in the military. They were in the press. They looked and acted just like everybody else. But they were in fact working for the enemy. And at the right time, they would do whatever it took to sabotage the nationalist government so that, the, so that it would fall to the rebels. Um, that's sort of what the situation we have in Second Peter, okay, and what Second Peter is going to talk about. As I told you last week, <clears throat> the entire book is about false teachers. That's Peter's main concern, and he's going to address them directly in this chapter. In chapter 1... He said, the way you avoid false teachings and avoid false teachers, you inoculate yourself by making your calling and election sure. You add these seven qualities to your faith. Uh, remember, we talked about the word supplement, supplement lavishly to your faith. And in that way, he said at the end of chapter one, he said, you won't be ineffective uh, and you'll be fruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and you won't fall. And I said, that doesn't mean you won't sin, because other places in Scripture teach that we still wrestle with our sin nature. What it means is you won't fall prey to false teachers. And in chapter 3, <clears throat> he's going to talk about, uh, remember the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's also going to keep you from false teachers. Um, and then chapter 2, he's going to address them directly. This is an interesting chapter. Um, it was fun to study. I'm not so sure it's going to be fun to explain. Um, 
it is entirely descriptive. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there are no exhortations. There's no commands to do this or do this uh, or don't do this. It's entirely a description of these false teachers. And he doesn't address, he doesn't address uh, specifically what they're teaching that's false. So uh, in the letter to Galatians, to the Galatians, Paul was teaching against uh, the Judaizers, right? Who said you have to follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Second Peter isn't like that. It uses uh, symbolic language, uh, very descriptive language. He talks about them being uh, springs without water. He talks about the, them being mists. He talks about them being irrational animals, uh, creatures of instinct. So it's it's uh, it's kind of like a first century Twitter thread. Um, it's it's just this long stream of consciousness. Uh, and there's not this logical progression of ideas that you kind of get from Paul's. Uh, so I'm going to do my very best to uh, enter this stream of consciousness and, and talk about it. Um, but before we get into chapter 2, we need to go back to the tail end of chapter 1. Because Peter's going to say some things uh, that will help contrast to the false teachers of chapter 2. So let's go back to... Second uh, Peter chapter one verse fifteen. Um, if you're following along in your Bibles, I don't have the page number. If you're using a pew Bible, and he says, "I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow, we did not follow, not follow, follow. That's my southern coming out. We didn't follow." Uh, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is talking about Christ's transfiguration, which is related to us in Matthew 17. And if you remember from Matthew 17, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Christ, and Christ was transfigured before them. He became white, and Moses and Elijah appeared also. So uh, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets appeared to uh, Peter, Peter, James, and John. And so what Peter is saying here is, listen, I was an eyewitness to this. I saw Christ. I wasn't following cleverly devised tales. And, and the Greek word for cleverly devised tales is mythos, which is where we get our myths, right? So I wasn't following legends. I wasn't following these fantastic stories, uh, which is what you see in some of the later Gnostic gospels, right? Christ is doing all these crazy things. He's 70 feet tall. Um, Peter's saying, this isn't like this. You can trust my testimony because it's eyewitness. And, and both Kent and Mike have talked about the importance of eyewitness testimony in the first century. Uh, it was, it's reliable, right? And to, even today, it's still the most reliable testimony. You, if you have an eyewitness, somebody that actually saw the events, you give what they say a little more credence. So, so Peter is establishing his bona fides. He's saying, you can trust what I say. And then he's going to go on in uh, 
19 and 20. And it's going to say, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's saying, <clears throat> I'm, an <clears throat> excuse me. I'm an eyewitness, you can trust what I say, but even more than my eyewitness testimony, we have the prophetic word. All right? So Peter, Peter is saying, look at the Scripture... Um, what they teach about Christ, what they teach about um, these matters that these false teachers are, are trying to lead you away from. All right? So, so what is Peter saying? Read your Bibles, right? Read your Bibles. Because in addition to adding these seven qualities to your faith, if you're in the Scripture, you know what the Scripture says, it's more sure... And you're going to avoid these false teachings. All right? And so it, it, it was, you know, let's just use this one. Okay. So we'll, we'll adapt. We'll, we'll take the marine motto. Adapt and overcome. If I can get out of this. Okay. Okay. Where's it? Okay. So, so he's going to say, look at the scriptures, test the scriptures. A, sh a short rabbit trail. Okay. We have, in 2018, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history. We have the benefit of creeds and councils. <clears throat> okay, where the church has fought out these heresies about Christ's deity, Christ's humanity. All right. And so we have the benefit of that. If someone comes to you and says, I have a fresh or a novel way of interpreting Scripture, you should run screaming the other way. Okay? Because chances are pretty high that they're a false teacher. Because there, there are different ways to explain Scripture, but we have dealt with and have um, a body of orthodoxy that we should hold to. And that's not what these false teachers were doing. Uh, so Peter wants to hammer home the point that you can trust the scriptures. All right. Let's look at chapter 2. So you see, he opens chapter 2. He says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Okay, there's a lot to unpack uh, just in that little section of Scripture. So one thing Peter says is um, this is not a new problem, right? Uh, we tend to think when heresies pop up, well, th where did this come from? This is new. P Peter's saying this is not new, right? It, it plagued the children of Israel. It tr plagued the nation of Israel. There were false prophets, um, which is why... God gave some very severe penalties. You read in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Uh, in Deuteronomy 13, uh, God said that if a prophet comes and he says it's going to rain in three days, and it does, but then he says let's follow another God, which you haven't known, that that prophet is a false prophet. 
And then he's going to say the penalty for, for falsely prophesying is death. They were to be stoned. Okay, so, so false prophesy is not something new, and it's something God takes very seriously. And Peter says that there are going to be false teachers as well. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, and then he's going to say that they arose from among you. These are, just like the fifth column, these are people that look like us, act like us, talk like us. Right? He's going to say later they secretly bring in heresies. Nobody stands up and announces, hey, I'm a heretic. I'm, I'm leading you astray. Right? It, it just doesn't happen. It happens little by little. Think the frog analogy, right? How do you boil, how do you boil the frog? Right? You, don't, you don't throw it in boiling water. You turn up the heat little by little when the frog doesn't realize it's being boiled. All right? We, we see this over and over in Scripture. Uh, Acts 20. Paul's on the beach with the Ephesian elders, right? So these are people that maybe he's even led to Christ and established the church that he's worked with. And he says, from among your own number, there are going to be people that are going to lead the disciples away, right? It, guys, it's never, it's never outside forces that take down a church. Um, it's always wrought from within. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of times that rot comes from people in leadership. All right. It's one of the reasons I love our model uh, of leadership here, right? Because there's not just one person uh, who, who's setting the tone, right? If for lion and lamb to, to drift into apostasy or heresy, all five of us would have to lose our minds at the same time. And that, that you guys may think we're out of our minds all the time. Uh, I won't comment on that, but but it's not because we're, we're, we're a check on each other, okay? So there's not just one person standing up here saying, this is what we're going to do. All five of us would have to go crazy, which, yeah, we'll just leave that there. Um, okay, so let's keep going. So secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Um, and I want to take that sentence... Uh, a little bit out of order. So Peter doesn't uh, specify what denying the master who bought them. It doesn't does not, doesn't specify in what way they're denying the master. It could be that they are uh, denying some aspect of Christ's humanity or his deity. Uh, but he gives us some clues. And one is in the word bought, okay? Uh, the master who bought them. So that is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he is talking about the list of, um, uh, he's talking about you, you were bought with a price, so don't join your body to a prostitute. The word's a market term. It's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mangle the pronunciation, but it's ag- agarazzo. It's to buy or sell something in the market, purchase. Okay, and that's the same word here. And then Peter's going to say, many will follow their sensuality. So it seems to be what Peter has in mind here is these these false prophets are teaching uh, some sort of sexual sin or some sort of heresy involving sexual sin, right? Uh, And if you look, remember I, I ended last week by saying not much has changed since Peter's day. Well, not much has changed in our day because we have this same heresy in the church, okay? Um, and this is, <clears throat> excuse me, and this is one of the reasons Peter says this heresy is destructive, okay? 
<clears throat> Excuse me, let me get a drink of water, guys. Huh? I apologize. Allergies or something. <clears throat> so Peter is saying that this is destructive. And the, the word destructive means uh, damnable or, or uh, it can damn you. Okay? So not only the false prophet who is, or the false teacher who is teaching is damned, because Peter's going to say that later on, right? Their, their condemnation is not asleep. <clears throat> but it's the people that hear it um, that are also subject to uh, damnation. All right, he's going he's gonna to reiterate this in chapter 19. He's going to say, you're promising freedom, but you're actually delivering slavery. Right, and we see that in the church today. People promising, uh, you can live however you want. You can have sex with whomever you want. And there are no consequences to that. And that's a destructive heresy. Um, I want to take a quick quick rabbit trail. I want to I address millennials and Gen Z. So if you're not in that age group, you can uh, either pay attention or take a nap. Um, and I want to talk to you about sexuality, uh, your, your attitudes about sexuality, and, and in particular... Uh, and I say this because it's the issue that is facing the church, same-sex sexual relationships, okay? Uh, because if the polls are correct, 50 to 70% of professing Christians in that age group approve of uh, covenant, monogamous, same-sex relationships, okay? So I would guess in an audience here, we're probably less than that demographic, but 50 to 70% approve and one of the things the church gets accused of is being unloving right well your position is unloving okay listen i don't hold a traditional position on sexuality because i hate gay people or i think they're subhuman and i don't know anybody else that does either okay i'm not saying there aren't people in the church that are like that there are Uh, some segments of the church have been abominable in treating uh, gay and lesbian people. I hold that position, one, because I think it's what Scripture teaches, and not just six verses of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, but because of what Peter says. This leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. Right? And, and it's not just same-sex relationships it's, it's anything that promises freedom but actually leads you away from life, those destructive heresies. Okay? It is the opposite of loving to tell somebody what you're doing, which God calls sin, is okay, and there's no need to repent of it. Right? You're, you're leading them away from life towards death. Um, I read a blog this week in studying this by an affirming pastor, and it was titled, What If I'm Wrong? And he was contrasting the traditional and revisionist positions and, and came to that conclusion. You know, the revisionist position is the most loving. It's the, it's the most Christ-like. Uh, it, telling people that they can't do something um, that is intrinsic to who they are, uh, condemning them to celibacy, that's not loving. right? And he, he ended his blog post this way. 
And I'm going to read it, and this is a quote. It says, The consequences of my view include the producing of more people who love the Lord, who are reconciled with him, and who desire to win more souls to the loving arms of Christ. And then continues. I believe that if my position is evil, it is without doubt the lesser of two evils. No. No. If your position is wrong, and it is... Your position is evil. It leads to death. Okay? And, and that's, why, that's why we stand opposed to it. Right? I agree. Our messaging could be better, could be different, could be more compassionate. But we can't, we can't give up the message because of what Peter's saying here. These are destructive heresies. And it's the same, uh, it's the same teaching that there's no hell. Right? We, we see that. Rob Bell, love wins. Everybody gets in. There's no need to repent. God grades on a curve. You're okay. No, guys, that is a destructive heresy. It's destructive for the one teaching it, and it's destructive for the one hearing it. All right. That's, I'm off my soapbox now. All right. Okay. Um, and he says, uh, many will follow their sensuality, and because of the way of truth, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So it, it, it again should not surprise us that people who are saying uh, you can do whatever you want, there are no consequences for your actions, gain a gain a large following. All right, because everybody wants to hear that. Who wants to hear uh, deny yourself, take up your cross? Follow me, live according to these certain dictates. Don't do these things, right? That, that's sometimes that's not a fun message, right? Whereas over here, uh, do whatever you want, and then you get in at the end anyway. That's way more fun and, and gets more adherence. Um, so many will follow their sensuality, and he says the way of truth will be blasphemed. And this really struck me because um, you know occasionally a pastor will fall. And, and Christianity will will uh, will take a hit. Well, you should have acted better. Uh, but who gets celebrated in our culture? Who get, who get, who gets who gets lauded? Who gets applauded in our culture? Right? It's the people falsely teaching, do whatever you want. Who doesn't get applauded in our culture? Right? It's the people saying, hold to the standards. Okay. So so we are. We are so far beyond the day Peter's day, right? That that we're calling what is good evil, what is evil good, all right? And we've flipped the scripture on its head um, in a lot of respects. Okay, these to say their condemnation of, from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And this is important because maybe it's just me, uh, but do you guys ever? Um, you ever see? I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna step on somebody's toes here. I, I just know it. Um, you ever see Benny Hinn, or uh, you see Joel Osteen, or uh, Creflo Dollar, or any of those guys, and you just sometimes you get angry. I get angry. Maybe you don't because you're better people than I am. Uh, you know, and you're like, what in the world is going on with this? How can people believe this drivel that this guy is producing? 
What is up with it? Why does God allow somebody like this to gain a following? Why, why, does, why do people like that fill stadiums? You know, with 45,000 people in attendance. Okay, it just, it just boggles my mind. It gets you upset. Um, but listen, Peter says their condemnation is not, uh, from long ago, is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. It's a, it's a pretty common theme in Scripture to say, God, what are you doing? The wicked are prospering, God. I'm over here trying to live righteous, and, and the wicked are just out there doing whatever they want, and they're getting by with something. All right? You, you have Jeremiah 9, uh, 12 on uh, your study sheet. And it's really it really applies uh, to this, even though it was written hundreds of years before. It says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. And later on in that passage, God's going to answer Jeremiah, and my paraphrase is, he's going to say, don't worry about it, I got this. I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge Israel Righteously, and I'm going to judge the nations that I bring to judge Israel righteously. All right? And the message to us uh, in Second Peter is that, that God is going to do the same thing to false teachers. And so we needn't worry about it. Peter's, Peter's going to illustrate this. He's going to give us three cases uh, that are going to demonstrate God's righteousness and his justice in judgment. All right? The first is the case of the fallen angels. It says, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. All right. I'm going to stop there. We'll keep going through this. Okay. Angels are are greater in might and power than people are. Sounds pretty obvious, right? Think of the scriptures. Every time somebody saw an angel, uh, what did they do? They got scared. They got frightened or they fell down uh, like somebody who was dead. Right? But all that might and power didn't save them when they rebelled against God. God cast them out of his presence and he reserved them in chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment. And so what that tells us is, um, you know, one of the things people accuse God of is, uh, why would a God send somebody, why would a loving God send somebody to hell? The, the crime just seems disproportionate to the offense. All right, Peter's saying, no, listen, the, the crime is proportionate to the fence. Everybody gets justice, perfect justice. So the angels who should have known better, who saw God as he is, who were there when the universe was created, but inst- and should have kept their place, rebelled, they're going to share the same fate as the false prophet and Satan, right? Revelation says that they're going to be tortured day and night, okay? Because that the crime fits the punishment. Um, and Peter's going to say uh, later on in chapter 2 that the false teachers are going to share in that same punishment. All right? So God is, God is just when he punishes. And the next two are just the same thing. He talks about Noah, and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? It goes on. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness... With seven other persons, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 
Now, Genesis 6 says that uh, everybody except for Noah was, was doing evil. In fact, that's all they wanted to do, continually doing evil. And God determined that he had had enough. He was going to judge them. Uh, but he saved Noah and seven others out of that, out of that judgment. So this is God's kindness and his severity, right, from Romans. Um, God's severity towards the world who was wicked and deserved to be judged, and God's kindness uh, towards Noah and seven others in rescuing them. All right? And the same thing was, is with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, excuse me. Um, who, who got the just penalty for what they were doing, but God rescued Lot out of it. So the message Peter's trying to tell us is don't get wrapped up in uh, railing against false teachers, right? Do what, you, do what you're supposed to be doing. God will judge, and God will judge righteously and correctly. Nobody gets something they don't deserve, except for us who got grace that we didn't deserve, okay? All right. Um, so wrapping up, this, again, I said this was a hard chapter because uh, it's descriptive. There's not commands. There's not do this. What, is, what does it mean uh, to us? I'll try to wrap this up as we're, we're ending. Um, what is it, we need to recognize that there are false teachers. Okay? And just like in chapter 1, we need, to, we need to be diligent to do those things that inoculate us against false teachings. Be in the Word. Add these qualities to your life. Live diligently to work so that you're not subject to them. Um, and then we need, to, we need to understand the destructive nature of heresies. Okay? Um, you know, John Piper talks a lot about being on a wartime footing. And when you're on a wartime footing, you think differently. Think of uh, uh, people who have lived through World War II. Right? They, they planted victory gardens. They rationed sugar. They recycled rubber. Um, whatever it took to, to get the war effort going is what they were going to do. They sacrificed. Okay? And we need to understand the same thing. Again, when confronting destructive heresies, there may be a better way to do it, but we can't just back up and say, okay, we're going to seed ground. Uh, to these destructive heresies. And we can't because it's not hyperbole to say that pe- life and death is at stake. All right? It's not about getting our way. It's not about imposing our rules. It's not about imposing our morality. It's about life or death. And so we need to recognize that. And we need to hold out the hope and the joy of life in Christ. And then finally, we need to trust in Christ, uh, God's righteous judgment and his mercy. Okay? Uh, both the Apostles' Creeds and the Nicene Creed say that Christ will return one day to judge the living and the dead. Uh, um, and, and that's our message. That's our message. We want to hold out the hope of Christ. Right? We want to hold out a message that is opposite of what the false teachers are saying and be about the business of rescuing those who are perishing. So, let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, uh, you provide your word, you provide your spirit, dear God. Father, you give us everything that we need um, for life, godliness, as your word says. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you are sovereign over all things. Thank you, dear God, that you're a righteous uh, judge, that uh, you are correct in all your judgments, dear God. All your ways are perfect.
Uh, we thank you for that, dear Lord. Uh, Father, would you be with us as we worship you in song, as we worship you in the Lord's Supper. Uh, dear God, let us honor and glorify you with everything that we do. Amen.